All right, welcome to the fourth episode of Tom's Big Spiders podcast. I'm having a, a lot of fun doing these, and uh, hopefully it'll be something that's well-received and that I can continue to grow again. I can't wait to get into doing some interviews and things of that nature. But for the first several episodes, while I figure out how to do this and, and kind of catch my stride, it'll just be me for a bit. So hopefully that's okay. Starting off this time, I'd like to talk about something that's come up a couple times, and I have something going on in my YouTube channel. For those of you that don't know, and I'm assuming anybody that's following right now is probably pretty familiar with the fact that I have a blog and a YouTube channel, but just in case somebody stumbled upon this, yes, I have a YouTube channel. It's Tom's Big Spiders. You can find it. One of the things we've been talking about lately, and I've had a couple people ask, is about children in the hobby or children with tarantulas, and it's an interesting question because... On the surface, we're talking about big, venomous arachnids. I mean, that's let's call it as it is. They have fangs. They can bite. And although we have certain species that we've identified as being uh, tractable or will put up with handling or generally um, good-natured, the fact is they are wild animals. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole angle about how intelligent they are or whether or not they can actually cotton to being touched or handled or if they actually like human contact i personally haven't seen it yet i've seen they can be conditioned to do certain things but um i don't really see them as animals that are going to be tame like a dog or a cat so when you talk about children with them we got to talk about the fact that we are going to be working with animals that have the potential to cause bodily harm. Now, hopefully, for the sake of this argument, we're going to be talking about New World species. I honestly don't think there is any place in the hobby for kids, younger children, you know, we're talking 12 and younger, we'll say, playing around with highly venomous or fairly venomous animals, as in Old World species, or the baboon tarantulas, or the Pisolotheria species, tarantulas of that nature that can put a real hurting on an adult, never mind a child. So let's Take that right out of the way. No, I don't think children should be around while you're working with old world tarantulas. I have obviously the majority, probably a little over half my collection is probably old world now, maybe 50-50. And when I work on them, the kids have to be out of the room. Even when I'm feeding, when I'm doing maintenance, kids and dogs need to be removed. So let's take that out of the equation, just talk about the regular hobby. And honestly, I think it's a great thing for kids to be involved. And obviously, it's up to each parent to decide what level of participation their kid will have in the hobby with them. For a lot of us, I think it begins with just our, our children being around while we're feeding them and caring for them. They get to see what it's like to take care of an animal that depends on us for care. And I know with my kids, now granted, we've they've grown up around animals. They've, As far as they can remember, I've had snakes and, and bugs and tarantulas and things of that nature. So they're all pretty much used to it now, but I I will mostly be referencing my son, Kale, my seven-year-old, who is the one that's kind of still in that stage where I can tell he probably inherited a little bit of dad's arachnophobia. And again, I know there's been a discussion about whether it was some kind of scientific study about whether or not arachnophobia is actually inherited or whether we learn it from watching our parents. He has only known me as being somebody who's not scared of spiders. My wife, Billy, is not scared of spiders at all. My other children are not scared of spiders, yet he does have a little bit of fear of them. That said, I also see that fascination. And I think a lot of us, even those of us who started off as arachnophobic, had that fascination to start off with. I've referenced before that I was highly arachnophobic, but I never killed them. I appreciated them. I thought they were useful animals. 
and I was fascinated by them. It's almost like sharks. I grew up with the movie Jaws, really messed me up as a kid. I'm terrified of going in ocean water because of sharks to this day. And honestly, they're one of my favorite animals. I love watching videos of them. They've just, I'm in awe of them. So I think for a lot of this, it's capturing that bit of fascination that kids have. You know, there's going to be in some cases that horror, the fear, but capturing, latching onto that fascination and kind of stoking it and, and making it grow so that they start to appreciate them more and see them less as big, scary bugs, for lack of a better term, and more as furry animals. I will say, even in my own transition from being arachnophobic to not arachnophobic, I don't see them as insects anymore or, or arachnids. I see them almost the way you'd look at a hamster or a ferret. There's just big furry animals, not ones I necessarily want to cuddle with, but that's kind of how I see them. And anybody that's been in the hobby for any length of time, when you share your love of these animals with other people, you know the looks you get. They think you're nuts. And that's because to the world at large, these are horrifying creatures. It's That's the sad truth of it. I mean, I think one of the biggest... Um, phobias out there is spiders. It's spider snakes, and I think it might be clowns or something of that nature. I'm not into clowns much myself, but by, most people out there are afraid of them, and I think it's because all of us are conditioned that they're nasty. I mean, you, you hear people all the time say, I found a spider in my house, I killed it, whatever, they don't think twice of it. I try to teach my students, I teach at school, I try to teach my students that not do that. I've told them even since I was a kid, I used to cup them and put them outside or in the basement or get them out of the way. So we're basically fighting an uphill battle here to try to get the world at large to see these guys with even a fraction of the awe and respect that we have. So where do we start with this? Well, with the kids. And that's where I think having the kids be part of the hobby is very important. These are the ones that are going to inherit this hobby. Even since I got my first spider back in the 90s, the hobby has continued to grow, albeit a little bit more slowly than some of the other exotic trades. And I think it's because we're working with an animal that is feared by many. But I do think it will continue to grow. And what's happening is a lot of people now, if you have kids, you know this, they sometimes get interested in what you're doing. If you're working on a car, if you're playing a video game, if you're writing, whatever it may be, they naturally want to know what is mom and dad doing? Is it something I'm interested in? And I think it's very easy to hook a kid on working with animals. There's a natural fascination there. So yes, I absolutely 100% think that kids should be introduced to the hobby younger, at younger ages. I do think it's important to be responsible about it. Now, We'll get into the handling thing in a bit, but I honestly think that you have to look at the age of the kid, the responsibility of the child, like what level they're at. I know my seven-year-old is a little bit of a nut job sometimes, love the kid to death, but I know that he's very respectful of my animals, so I can have him around when I'm feeding, I can have him watching, I can point flashlight and say, check this one out, and whatnot. Sometimes if you have a kid that's going to reach out and instinctively grab something, you got to be aware of that. So it's, it just comes with being smart as a parent, knowing what your child is capable of handling and not putting them in any unnecessary danger. And that comes back to the original point I made that these are venomous animals. So it should, in my opinion, for younger kids, it should be hands off for the time being. Now, 
a lot of us out there have had their kids hold tarantulas to show them that they're safe and they won't hurt them. And I get that. And I'm not going to lie, Sid and Roan, my two older ones, have both held a Uathless species. And I had mixed feelings about it because after I did, I thought, all right, you know what? If that had bitten my daughter or my son and they had flipped the spider, it would have could have hurt the spider. It would have hurt them. They would have been traumatized for life. So I looked at what at the time I thought was a good thing because they were holding the spiders. They were seeing they weren't bad. But then I kind of sat back and thought about what the ramifications could have been had it gone wrong, and I could have done more damage than uh, anything else I could have done at that time had it bit them. So keep in mind, if you are doing the handling thing, make try to ensure that there is in no way, shape, or form any chance they're going to get bit. And that's very tough to do with handling because you never know what's going to happen. I know when uh, my daughter, Sid, held one of my Uathla species, Right after she was getting it off her hand, we put it in the enclosure. I accidentally breathed on it, and that thing took off. Now, if that had been on her hand at that time and shot up her arm onto her head, who knows? It would have been a bit of a nightmare. So something to keep in mind is just be careful if you're handling. A lot of us don't handle now, and it's for me, it's more because I know my reaction when I get bit is going to be to flick the animal off and probably harm it. Um, I also deal with a lot of old world, so I practice good technique with everything I work with because I don't ever want to be in a situation where an old world goes to the bolt and I reflexively stick my hand out to grab it and get tagged. My goal is to not get bit in this hobby. So with my kids, I'm very careful. We haven't held anything since then, but I will have Sid and Roan come and help me with transfers sometimes with new world species. I do have them. Obviously, they've held the camera for me when I've done videos. They have helped feed recently with my son Kale, my seven-year-old, I've allowed him to come in and feed a couple. I've been right there with him and I basically pick up the cricket and it's been kind of a nightmare because sometimes he, he doesn't know how to pinch the tongs hard enough to keep the cricket without killing it. So we end up with mush crickets. We end up crickets that escape or roaches. But to see the look on his face when he pulls it off and I'm going to be posting a video uh, pretty soon. I'll talk about this more in a moment in which he fed his first one. The excitement there was just amazing. So I think a lot of us go through this with our kids, and I think that as long as they are supervised, yes, absolutely kids should be involved in this hobby. It's an amazing hobby, and they're going to learn so much from their parents that I assume are doing the research, respect these creatures, know their care, that they're going to be one step ahead of everybody else when they start getting their own animals. And we uh, a couple of years ago, I did a top beginner species, and one of the things I had in mind with that when I created that list was, although the lists are kind of silly sometimes because different people are ready for different things, and I will definitely tackle that whole thing uh, in, in a future installment. But what I've found is that when I make those lists, I picture the typical 12-year-old uh, boy or girl. And that's usually about the age where kids start getting their first pets. They're in their room. They're allowed to take care of them. And I think what would be a good species for a kid to handle at that age that would be the least risky of the bunch. And that's why I kind of lean towards some of the slower growing new world species because I'm picturing that 12-year-old boy and 12-year-old girl and I have a hard time picturing them with a big um, Lysiodora parabena or a, even the one of the ones that comes out all the time is the geniculatas. The Cathascuria geniculatas come up as good beginners. And I think with most people, they can start with those. But I always think back to those children. And that's the age where people get their first ferret, their hamster, their little pet where mom and dad go, all right, sadly, it comes down there. We're going to sacrifice this poor animal to you so you can practice taking care of an animal. And, and it, a lot of times the care isn't great. Mom and dad will obviously monitor and keep track of it. But 
I do think that around 12, 13 years old, that is when a kid could have a tank in their room if they're responsible enough with the tarantula and obviously adult supervision as needed. And that's a great animal to start with because they need minimal care. So instead of giving them the hamster, and I, I remember when my parents, when I was a kid, got my brother, I love the death, uh, two hamsters, and all oh, gerbils, I'm sorry, they were gerbils, and it was a debacle. We had grown up on a farm, we, you know, I thought we had a pretty good grasp of taking care of animals, but one of them got out one night, and there were bites, and one of them had passed away and continued to be fed, so there was basically a pile of food on it, because my brother hadn't realized it died, he thought it was in its little hide. It was a nightmare, and I'm thinking back, my mom would not let us have tarantulas. Had we had a tarantula, I think we'd probably be still alive right now because they're so simple to keep. They're they're not difficult to clean. You don't have to clean them all the time. You put in some fresh water, make sure they have that. You feed them sometimes once a week. Some people feed them once a month for the larger ones, and they're good to go. They don't require heat. They don't require any special treatment. They don't have to be handled to be tame. Just a great beginner pet. So, I do think that uh, the majority of us that have kids love getting them hooked in the hobby. You see the wonder in their eye when they see them. You watch them start to approach these animals as something that's scary and dangerous, and then they start to relax, and you see more of that fascination grow. And I think as parents, it's our job to kind of grab onto that and encourage it and make it grow even bigger so that these kids are, you know, taking the torch later on and bearing the torch and keeping this hobby going forward. So on my YouTube channel, to go back to that, one of the things we're going to be doing is I'm taking videos from folks who have kids that they are going to do one to three minutes, four minutes. Honestly, I don't care as long as it's not a 20-minute video. But I want to see some parents working with their kids on these. I want to see some kids talking about the tarantulas they like. There's nothing that's cooler than seeing a seven-year-old kid start naming off scientific names for tarantulas. That's amazing. What a good way to get kids caught up with talking about animals and liking animals. And you can even segue it into talking about the environment and where they come from. It's just a great thing. So moving ahead, we will be doing that and I think it's going to be something really special. I know I got my video of my son feeding, doing his first feeding, and he was so excited to actually do it and pull it off and have the, the tarantula eat. I've already got one video of a young man talking about his favorite tarantula. I want to see whatever they want to show me. I want to see parents working with them. How do they work during the house? Do they stand there while you're feeding? Do you talk? I know my son will ask me a million questions when he's interested. So we do want to encourage that in the hobby because, again, these guys are going to be inheriting the hobby. And when we talk to people about it, because that can be a tough one to explain. I've had people ask me, you know, you get all the silly questions when they find out you have tarantulas, and they're like, well, you don't have the kids in your house while you're doing that, do you? And I'm like, yes, I do. But just like anything that can be dangerous, and I've had people bring up, like, gun safety and things of that nature, and obviously not opening up that hot-button topic, but the idea of, like, when I grew up, we had a gun in the house because we had a farm. My dad had a shotgun. You needed the gun. We knew to respect that. We were taught that... We weren't to touch it. We were we obeyed that. So it's kind of around the same theory where they need to know these are animals that need to be respected. They can't get out. You want to let the kids know. Some of them could do you serious harm if you mistreat them or if you let them out, but in a way that it doesn't scare them. So I think that when people ask, do you let your kids around doing this? That's a good opportunity to say, hey, listen, these are these are not animals like they're portrayed on TV. They're not vicious killers. The majority of them are very laid back and would rather just be left alone. So having my kid around when I'm feeding them and sharing that interest is worth way more than sticking them in another room I feed them and have them just wonder why does dad go away and play with spiders every once in a while. So I do think that it is kind of our job to 
have our kids enjoy this hobby with us and to use these opportunities when people ask us about this to explain the fact, and I know that people can be very difficult with trying to understand this and the looks you get, but I've had really good luck going, yeah, my kids love the hobby. I'm sure they're probably going to take some of them. We're going to take it up when they move out of the house or maybe they'll get one while they're here. We'll see how it goes. I know my oldest son just moved out and he's looking to get one. He's just got a very drafty apartment right now, so he doesn't want to get one yet. But I do think that it's a good opportunity to say, yes, I do let my kids come around when I'm doing this. And it's a great opportunity for them to learn and realize they're not as scary as everybody thinks. This next one's a question that's actually come up a few times lately. And people have been asking, what exactly is room temperature? What, what would you consider to be room temperature? And I think this is a great question. I think in the hobby, we tend to sometimes overcomplicate things. We present information in a manner that almost makes it sound like keeping tarantulas is this amazing scientific uh, study that you have to have everything just perfect, and that's not necessarily the case. When In the case of room temperatures, when you're talking about room temperatures, this is one of the places I think we sometimes oversimplify and it causes some confusion. So, for example, if we were to take room temperature in my house for what I'm comfortable at sitting at during the wintertime, I'm good for like 65 degrees. That's fantastic for me. Now, if you were to go to my grandmother's house during the same time period for my grandmother, we're talking probably in the 80s. That's her room temperature. Um, some places are colder and warmer than others. I know I talked to folks from UK, and I just talked to a keeper from Scotland that was telling me in the wintertime it gets very, very, their room temperature in their house is like low 60s, which would I would consider to be kind of chilly. Um, other people might have higher temperatures. So what is good room temperature? I think when you're looking at what temperatures you can safely keep tarantulas at, you're talking for most species, and this isn't all of them, something along the lines of 66, 67, 68 degrees to low 70s is what most people are looking at from room temperature. So for example, in my house, we're looking at right now in my living room, it's 68 degrees. In my tarantula room, it's a little higher because what happens is the thermostat is in my living room, so it gets cooler there quickly. It's, it's kind of more open, and the heat kicks on in there to raise the temperature in my living room when it's much warmer already in my tarantula room. So things to think about when you're talking about room temperature, you're looking at generally in the high 60s to 70, I would consider it to be room temperature. The majority of species of tarantulas will do just fine if the temperature dips below 70 degrees. And if the temperatures get warmer and you're looking at the 80, the majority of them, again, will do just fine. You're just going to get much faster growth out of them. Now, something to think about. Many, if you took a thermometer around to various rooms in your house, and I've actually done this before and it's really kind of fascinating, we talk about setting a room temperature in our house. We set the, let's say, 70 degrees in our home. Depending upon where you put that thermometer, you're going to get a totally different temperature. So, for example, in my tarantula room, if I put the thermometer on the top shelf, I usually get something around 78 degrees or so. If I put it on the bottom shelf, we're talking around 72, sometimes even lower. So when you're trying to figure out where to put your tarantula, maybe you get into your home and you found that, you know, it's a little bit chilly in the living room and sometimes it's, it's drafty. I know I have an older home and sometimes the windows can be drafty. Perhaps you want to look for another room that offers a little bit more warmth and a little more consistent warmth. Sometimes it can just be a different corner of the room. So before I started doing this in my living room, I sat down and put the thermometer on the floor, and it was about 65 degrees on the floor, even though my temperature in my living room right now is set at 68. 
Then I took it and put it up on a shelf above my TV, and it was closer to 71 degrees. So even in the same room, you may be able to hunt around and find a corner or a area in the room that is actually warmer than the other. So that's something to think about even for people who have larger collections when you're arranging your collections, and I'm sure a lot of you have already realized this and do it. Depending on the species, you can adjust them in the room on different shelves. So, for example, ones that I don't need it to be particularly warm, they go on the bottom shelves. For mature males that I might want to hang on to because I want to breed them, I put them on the bottom shelves. It's not too... Uh, encourage super fast growth where if I put them on the top shelf I'm going to get them to mature out much more quickly a lot of my arboreals that are more or my tropical species I put on the upper shelves because it gets a little warmer so something to think about when you're talking about room temperature it is a range and depending on the time of the year somebody's room temperature could be 85 degrees and somebody's room temperature could be 65 degrees it really depends so we're looking at that range in the middle of high 60s to low 70 and don't be afraid to play around i've had people ask me you know i I got a tarantula and i just measured it my my living room it's 63 degrees what should I do? I mean, that's that's a little cold for a lot of species. Some will do fine. Some of the, you know, Gramostola and Brachypelma species will do fine. But if it's a tropical species or an arboreal or Vicularia, I, I wouldn't let it dip that low personally. I'm sure there's people out there that have experimented and maybe had luck with it. That's just a little low for me. But then what you want to do is it's, it's a small animal. It's a small enclosure. You want to go around the house and find a spot that is more appropriate for the animal. So although you may want your Vicularia species to be the centerpiece of your living room and you want everybody that comes in to see it and be able to comment on it, if your living room is really cold then it may need to go in another room for a little while it doesn't need to be permanent if your bedroom is a lot warmer stick it in the bedroom on a shelf for a little while or put it up on a higher shelf in the living room if the kitchen's warm hey heck use the kitchen but the trick is to kind of move them where you can now for those of you with bigger collections that you can't really move them around from room to room then if it's cooler in that room and that's where you have the keep it you don't have any other alternative then that's when you look at getting a space heater. And I use one myself. I have the oil-filled space heaters. I set it to one temperature. It it only goes off if it gets cold in the room, and then it only goes on long enough to warm up the room. I don't go crazy with it. I literally keep it set at about 72 degrees. And what happens is because the heat is running in the rest of the house, it usually maintains between 72 and 77 degrees in that room. So something to think about as opposed to trying to heat everybody independently and have all your different enclosures with different heat things. That's just dangerous and not necessarily a good idea. Try to get one of those, invest in one of those, and use it to heat the entire room. But for most people, you'll never need anything like this. If you're walking around your house in the wintertime and it's 67 degrees or so, you're probably in really good shape. So again, with room temperatures, we tend to oversimplify this one a bit. And it's one of the rare ones because usually we make things more complicated than they actually are. Just be cognizant of the different temperature zones in your room. Do some experiments. I implore people go out, buy a decent thermometer, and just check out some of the corners. Try to figure out where the traffic's coming in. If you have a room where there's a lot of, you know, it opens to a foyer and there's uh, cold air coming in all the time from the outside, that's not a good place for them. Just be cognizant of the fact that different parts of your home, different areas in your home, are going to have different room temperatures and plan accordingly and put your tarantulas in the correct place. For this last section, I'd like to talk about something that sounds incredibly boring and mundane on the surface, but I get a lot of questions about it, and I think some people will kind of perk up when they hear it, but substrate. And the reason why I'm bringing this one up is because I post a lot of videos on YouTube, and I get a lot, I believe this week alone I had about a dozen questions about the substrate I use, and I think people see what I'm using, realize it works for me, and, and think that it's the quote-unquote right type of substrate to use, and that couldn't be further from the truth. 
Bottom line is there are many different substrates that you can use for tarantulas. I just used something and experimented and found something that works well for me. And I think one of the big issues in the hobby is the fact that people will do something, they'll have good luck with it, and basically spout off saying that this is the correct way to do it, when in fact it's just one way to do it. I do believe there are some things in the hobby that are set in stone that we have figured out through years of experimentation from keepers and keeping these guys that we know they're they're just we have proof that they work. We have proof that they are good practices. As far as substrate is concerned, we don't. There are some things we've ruled out. Back when I first got into the hobby in the 90s and got my first tarantulas, people would use aquarium gravel and aquarium stones to house them on because you know nothing looks prettier than a big brown spider. It was usually G. Portary at the time hobbling around on some brightly colored little stones. Unfortunately, that's terrible for their feet. They get their feet caught. They hate walking on it. It's just a terrible substrate for a tarantula. It's just nasty. So luckily, we realized we don't use that anymore. Also, people would use sand a lot, and for some species, it works. I mean, there are species that obviously are in areas that have sand, but for other species, it can be very abrasive. If you don't use the right sand, it could be bad for them, and it can get, you know, the dusty stuff can get in their book lungs. There's just a lot of reasons why people have kind of steered away from using straight sand, although I use it in some of my enclosures, and we'll get to that in a minute, but most people don't use straight-up sand anymore. The big one when I first got into the hobby was vermiculite. Everybody kept their tarantulas on vermiculite. My G. Porteri was on uh, an inch or so of vermiculite for years, probably close to a decade, before I finally swapped it out. And at the time, that was considered to be good practice. Everybody kept theirs on vermiculite. If you had a moisture-dependent species, you could just wet it down. It held the moisture really well. Unfortunately, it's not particularly good for burrowing species. It's very difficult for spiders to burrow in vermiculite, especially dry vermiculite, and it can be very dusty. So people migrated away from that. Also, in the 90s, there was a scare with there being asbestos in the vermiculite. Apparently, they were pulling vermiculite from a mine that was very close to an asbestos mine, and the asbestos was getting mixed in. So for a while, vermiculite actually disappeared from the store shelf, so people had to migrate to something else. And then we had cocoa fiber and that seems to be the most popular one nowadays and again this is not going to be about bashing cocoa fiber because i used it for quite some time and still use it on occasion with certain things so it is a decent substrate but some of the issues i had with cocoa fiber personally was one the rehydrating the bricks was not necessarily the most convenient thing in the world when I get new tarantulas in having to bake the substrate and that's a trick you can use a turkey a foil turkey pan in the oven and bake it on low heat and keep mixing it to kind of dry it out but again when you got spiders coming in and you realize you don't have enough substrate and you have to rehydrate one of those bricks it can be kind of an extra pain in the butt to get it ready so that became an issue it's also quite pricey even if you get it as the brick form and use that it's a little cheaper than buying it in the bags but it's still much more expensive than say dirt and what was happening is i was buying all these bricks and kept having to order them and i was getting them from petco at the time on sale so i was getting a really good price on them but once you rehydrate them and dry them out, they really don't amount to a heck of a lot. So I was going through a lot of bricks and a lot of money. When I started keeping moisture-dependent species, one of the issues I had was I would put the bricks in nice and moist. And what happens is as they dry out, the stuff settles a great deal. So for example, I had one of my Pamphibetus and my Pamphibetus antinus in some cocoa fiber at one point, And there was about six inches, good solid six inches of cocoa fiber. Well, unfortunately, once it all dried out, it settled down to about three inches or so. So you don't end up with as much as you put in to begin with, at least as far as depth. So again, it works well, but it's just something that I wanted to start experimenting and see if I could find something that was uh, a little less expensive 
and find something that worked a little better for what I was trying to do. So I experimented with peat moss. That's a popular one. You can get it for about 10 bucks for a giant bale of it. Um, unfortunately, with the peat moss, I found that it worked pretty well for dry cages, except it's very, very dusty. And when I tried to use it moist, I was starting to get mushrooms. And this was from two different bags of peat moss. I was getting these weird fungi that would pop up and giant mushrooms. It just it was a little much. So then what I did was switch over to topsoil. And this is what I use now. You can find topsoil and you want organic and you want to make sure that it's organic without any animal waste in it. Most of the topsoil does not have any type of fertilizers in it. So you should be all set. But organic topsoil, check the label and... I started buying Scots at first, but it had a lot of chunks of things in it. Then I went to Timberline, and now I'm buying Agway topsoil. I get it in 40-pound bags. I, they cost anywhere from, I think the Agway stuff is about $3, a little more expensive, but you can get for, if you go to, uh, what is it, uh, Lowe's or Home Depot, you can usually find bags of topsoil for about a buck fifty, especially in the springtime. So very, very inexpensive, and it works great as far as when you have to fill a large enclosure. Uh, I do mix it with vermiculite, and I, that's my vermiculite habit from the 90s came back. I buy big, huge bags of vermiculite. I get them at Agway as well. I mean, they're big, like almost garbage bag size bags of vermiculite. And depending on the species, if I'm using it for a dry species, I will use pretty much straight topsoil. However, if I'm using it for a moisture-dependent species that I know I'm going to be adding water to, I like to mix in about 20 to 40 percent of vermiculite, which not only allows it to absorb water better, and this is particularly evident when you're trying to add water when it's dried out. It allows the water to percolate down through better, but it also holds the water much better. And I found that this mixture tends to hold water better than straight cocoa fiber did or straight peat, just in my experience. Now, I also will mix sometimes peat in with stuff. I will use sand sometimes. I have uh, white playground sand that I use, for example, in my M. Balfouri communal setup. I used a combination of topsoil with a lot of peat, some sand, and mixed it all up really good. So I got kind of a drier substrate, and that worked really well. So then, again, there's the sand coming back into play. So you can mix around, play with things, and try to find something that works well for you. I've talked to people that use very fine sand to mix it into the soil that allows the water to percolate down more, and it aerates the soil a bit. So I've been doing some experimenting with even adding a little bit of sand to some of my wet enclosures to see how it works out. But this is what I use, and it works very well for me. So again, it's about... 60% topsoil and 40% vermiculite, or sometimes 70-30, depending on the species, and occasionally even 80-20. It just depends on what I'm trying to keep and how much moisture I want to keep in there. I'll basically, I have a big Tupperware bin, I dump the whole bag of topsoil in, and then I start adding scoops of vermiculite, mixing it up until I get what I want. And when you're working with moist substrate, remember you don't want it dripping wet, you want to be able to squeeze a handful of it and have it hold its shape without water pouring out of it or dripping out of it. If there's water dripping out of it, if you can squeeze water out of it, basically it's too wet. So that's what I use now, but again, I have used peat, so those of you that use peat, Continue using peat. I'm not trying to dissuade you. And I have used the cocoa fiber. I still have bars of cocoa fiber here that I keep on tap just in case I need some. And sometimes I mix some of that in. And sometimes peat with cocoa fiber, peat with... uh, Regular topsoil, topsoil with cocoa fiber, topsoil, cocoa fiber, sand. You can play around with the mixtures and find something that works for you. I know Lugardi substrate has kind of come into play now. They're putting out their own tarantula, premium tarantula substrate. And I reviewed that before, and that has some wonderful properties to it. But I can tell you it's a mixture of a lot of the things I just mentioned, including even some clay. So something to think about if you're wanting to play around with a substrate. 
try some experiments. Mix some things up. Add some water. See how long it takes for it to evaporate. It's kind of fun. My son Ronan and I did an experiment when I first started switching up between different combinations of peat and vermiculite, topsoil vermiculite, all different mixtures of substrate and kind of measured how long it took the water to evaporate. And that's how I came up with this new mixture. The one downfall I will say of the topsoil and the big drawback is it is heavy. It's it's very it's a forty pound bag is not particularly large and it's heavy dense stuff. So if you're filling a large enclosure, like for example, my H Gigas enclosure probably weighs about thirty pounds or so, especially because I keep it moist. So something to keep in mind if you're using a large already heavy glass aquarium and you're loading this stuff into it, it's going to make it very very heavy. So again, I implore people. Feel free to experiment. See what works for you. Maybe you try the topsoil vermiculite. It doesn't work for you. Try topsoil and peat. Try peat and vermiculite. Try whatever you think works for you. But know that basically if you're using peat, if you're using topsoil, or if you're using cocoa fiber, those are all very good options for tarantulas. All right, so that's about it. Went slightly over my 30-minute mark. I thank everybody again for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you want to find me on Facebook, it's Tom's Big Spiders. Also, you can look me up on YouTube under Tom Moran or Tom's Big Spiders. And don't forget to check out my website, which is tomsbigspiders.com. I got my own thing now. It's no longer under um, WordPress. It used to be a WordPress one, so I got my, my own web address now. So, again, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.